We're going to take a reading from Luke chapter 3 and into chapter 4 as we continue our series in Luke's Gospel. The title for today's talk is The Saviour's Inauguration or the Messiah's Inauguration. And an inauguration is a ceremony usually that uh, would take place when a new leader steps into their term of office. So there's a new administration comes in. And at this point in the life of Jesus Christ, there is something new happening. And that's why we've entitled it the Saviour's Inauguration or the Messiah's Inauguration. Messiah is probably the better focus because he is God's promised one that God said he would reveal. And here is the beginning of his revealing to humanity in all of his glory. So read with me, if you have your Bibles there, in Luke chapter 3 and verse 21. Now when all the people were baptised, and when Jesus also had been baptised and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you... I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then you've got a long list of the names that go all the way to verse 38. Go there with me, please. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and, this, and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit, to Galilee. And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. What a peculiar inauguration. In contrast with the inauguration ceremonies of the leaders of this world, who will step into office for a period of time, here is the great promised king, who is being revealed as God's king, over everything and his inauguration ceremony in a sense is strikingly different and it demonstrates to us 
the magnitude of what God has done in identifying with us that he might bring us to himself. We're going to have uh, three uh, focus points today. We're going to think about Jesus and his identification with sinners. But alongside that, his sinless perfection before God. We're going to think secondly then about Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit so that he is empowered for his ministry, being equipped for the office into which he is stepping. What is that office? It's the revealing of who he is in God's purposes as the great king. And in third, we're going to think of Jesus and his faithfulness and victory as God's obedient son in the face of real temptation which shows to us that he is fit to occupy the office that he has. So Jesus' identification with sinners, but yet his sinless perfection. This is an amazing truth. We read in um, Luke 3, verse 21, it says, All the people were baptized, and last week you were considering how John the Baptist had come as a forerunner. And he came with a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it says in Luke chapter 3 and verse 3. He was coming and preparing the way for the Lord who was coming. It was inevitable the Lord was coming and John had this wonderful responsibility to go before. And part of that going before was to appeal to the people to be ready for this great Lord that was coming. And that involved them recognizing their sinfulness before God, who had promised he was coming. (coughs) And then recognizing that they must repent of their sin before God, so they would be ready when he comes. A right attitude towards God was necessary if God is coming, or else they would be swept away in God's judgment. That was essentially John's message. And a baptism of repentance was one where the sinners would come forward the Bible tells us that all have sinned. So those who recognized by God's help through the preaching of John the Baptist that they were sinners who needed to repent. And God put it in their heart as a kindness from him that they would repent and turn towards God and turn from their their ways which were wrong. They would come to John and they would say, I repent of my sin. Let's imagine it. I'm repenting of my sin before God. I want to do that which God will help me to do in this life. And then there was this baptism into water. The symbol that they uh, were repentant before God. Now that baptism is not the baptism that we do today as believers. It's a different symbolism. We don't have time to go into that. But this was a demonstration of a heart change in people. That God had brought about in response to the preaching of John the Baptist, in light of the fact that God said he was coming. The sense is the same thing for us by faith. When our heart is changed by God, recognizing that God is coming inevitably, and that if our sin is not sorted out, he then changes our hearts to see the Savior he has provided, the one in whom we can have the forgiveness of sins. And we should demonstrate that. We should be baptised to demonstrate the reality of that moment when by faith we have gone through that exchange. But what's the point here, without getting off down the path of baptism and what it is? John's baptism was for sinners. 
coming and saying, I'm a sinner and I repent. Now here was Jesus, and we've already considered him as the great eternal God. The second person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. God the Son, who has always existed in the community that is perfect and has always been from all of eternity. God the Son in God's purposes is the one who comes in to identify with humanity. And we thought about that in his incarnation as being born. And here he is, not just identifying this great God, not just identifying with humanity in the sense of becoming like them in the likeness of human flesh, but he's identifying with them as they're being sinners. Imagine what that's like for a holy and a perfect God to line up with others, in a sense, and say, I'm with them. But that's what our God has done. And that's why Christianity stands alone in all of the world's religions. There are other religions in our world that will view a great transcendent God or gods who would never lower themselves to get involved with the affairs of um, these messy, lowly human beings. And instead, they put these expectations on humanity that there might be bars to leap over and hoops to jump through to impress the gods so that you would have eternal life. That's not the God of Christianity. It's not the God who is the only God, the great creator God. He reveals himself as one who says, I see what my creature has done. And I've made them in my image. And to restore that which is broken, I will come and I will identify with them. So Jesus takes on the likeness of human flesh. But more than that, he lines up with us, with sinners, and he comes. You know, when Matthew records this in Matthew chapter 3, John is shocked because he has some understanding of who Jesus is. And when Jesus comes and says, I, I need to be baptized, John's reaction is, no way. I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? So John, before Jesus recognized that he was a sinner standing in the presence of one who was holy and righteous. Do you get this? This is amazing. That Jesus would line up with us and say, I'm with them and I've come to rescue them. But I'm without sin. And because of that, I am the reason that those who repent of their sin and put their trust in what God can do, then they will be with me. That's what Jesus has come to do, to line up with us, those who are gods from eternity, God's people from eternity, that he might bring them to himself. And he lines up and identifies with us. It's amazing grace and amazing mercy that God would do that. So he's baptised. And we have a wonderful uh, revealing in the baptism account of the Trinity. It's not a Bible word, but it's the way of describing God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. In cooperation at the same time, the three persons of the one God. That's a mystery to our minds, but they're there together. Now, this knocks on the head any notion that some might have 
in so-called Christian circles of something that's known as modalism, which is that God is one thing at one time and another thing at another time and another thing in a different time. That at some points he would be Father and we see him as such. Other times we would see him as the Son and he is that at some times and other times he is the Spirit and the power of his working. That's known as modalism. That's not God. Because here, what does it say? It says, Jesus was baptized and was praying. The Holy Spirit descends in um, bodily form like a dove onto him. And the voice of God, the Father from heaven, cannot keep quiet in the moment. And God declares something he could never declare about any other man who walked the face of the earth. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now Matthew records it differently and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But the other two accounts that we have in Mark and Luke, it's that personal thing. And I, I wonder in having studied this, if the, the Spirit's arrival as, as a dove in, in symbol form, this um, endorsement by God and empowering by God that this one is anointed for the office into which he is stepping and will be empowered by the Spirit who is the person who creates, the person who, in a sense, is the demonstration of the almighty power of who God is. He's involved there. And this declaration, you are my beloved son, I, I'm tending towards the view that this was something that was witnessed by the Lord and John the Baptist. And others didn't get it at all. Because John, when we read in John uh, chapter uh, it says this is the one on whom I saw the spirit descend and whom I heard this is my beloved son you're my beloved son God couldn't keep quiet because here was one up to this age about 30 years of age now there's some debate whether that means he was 30 or he could have been 35 that's a whole other discussion but he's in his early 30s the Lord is in his early 30s and he has lived that life to that point for the glory of God in all of his sinless perfection and that is why God tears the heavens apart as it says in one of the accounts and declares from heaven you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased so we have the trinity here we can see the three persons of the Godhead together existing at the one time engaged in this inauguration of the great king who will be the saviour king of his people. So there's a lot in that one, two verses that helps us with our understanding of God and our understanding of who Jesus is in his sinless perfection. The pleasure of God in the perfect sinless human life of God the Son who is now ready for service empowered by the Holy Spirit. You know, it's the fusing of two Old Testament statements. Psalm 2 verse 7, God announces to the one that he installs as king. He says, you are my son. And then Isaiah 42, verse 1. Look at my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. It's the bringing together of those two prophetic statements. One that regards the Messiah king. You're my son. And the other that views the servant who would come and suffer. And we see the suffering in Isaiah 53. But Isaiah 42 begins 
or look at the suffering servant. Look at him. I uphold him. He's my beloved. My soul delights in him. And on him I put my spirit. We see this inauguration at the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm coming back to the question for any who might be listening or any who are physically here. Have you been baptised? Believer's baptism is to represent that heart change that God works in us when we view the Saviour that he has provided to be our Saviour. And our deadness is gone and we've been given life. In Romans chapter 6, we're told that baptism is a symbol of having died with Christ and being buried with him and raised to walk in newness of life. Believer's baptism is representing something that has happened spiritually. But my point in this is if Jesus, the holy, sinless Son of God, was prepared to identify with reprehensible sinners in a baptism for the repentance of sin, identify with us in that way, would we not, as those who claim allegiance to him, be baptised too? To declare our identification with him. I can't see how you can't not do that for the glory of God. How else does Luke tell us that uh, Jesus identifies with humanity in all of its sinlessness, in all of its sinfulness, but yet in his sinlessness? We didn't read the genealogy because you would have gone to sleep, but it notices it says. Jesus began his ministry about 30 years age, being as supposed the son of Joseph, Mary's husband. But then you go down the list and it goes all the way back. In contrast to Matthew's genealogy, and there's reasons why the two are there in scripture. Again, that's for another time. But it traces it all the way back to Adam, from, from whom all humanity are descended. The son of God. Now, Luke, under the superintendent work of the Holy Spirit in bringing scripture together like this, this is no accident. You're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he goes into a genealogy where it ends with the son of God. And it's referring to Adam as the son of God. And Adam was, in a sense, as Paul says to people when he's preaching, we're all the offspring of God. We've come from God. Because God made Adam, and from Adam we have all come. But as a consequence of Adam and Eve's sin, we're all sinners. So we have failed as sons. We have denied ourselves. Um, we have disinherited ourselves from all that would come to the sons of God. Because we turned away thinking, well, there must be something better than God. So Luke here is saying, in his genealogy, here is this Jesus who is identifying with all of humanity, descended from Adam, the son of God who failed. Now we're going to show you, Luke says, the son of God, in all of his glory, who did not fail. And he did not fail, so that he might bring many sons to glory. Those who would put their faith and trust in him as the saviour. So, Referring to Jesus as the son of Adam, the son of God, has that two senses to it, that Jesus has come to identify with all of humanity. Uh, but also he's making this contrast between the failure of humanity 
and the faithfulness of Jesus, the Son of God. Because we're all sinners, we all need a saviour who comes from outside of the broken and infected system. And praise God that he has done it and it's his design. God has infinite wrath, justly so, against the offensive sin of sinners. And that infinite wrath will be expended on those who maintain their, their stance against God that is against him. But Jesus is the Son of God who is able, because he is God, to bear the infinite wrath of God when he will offer himself as a sacrifice for sin, bearing our sins in his body on the tree. Isaiah 53 comes into it as well. He suffered on our behalf because he could, because he was God. He could bear the infinite wrath of God against our sin. But he must be a man as well if he's to, to redeem humanity. Because there must be somebody who is able to have kept God's righteous demands. So here is Jesus, the man who will keep all of God's righteous demands and satisfy him that humanity can do it at the same time as dealing with the failure of humanity through the eternal being of the Son. Do you see the two coming together? That's why God must become man. To live the righteous life that satisfies God's standard. But at the same time being God. So that he might endure God's wrath against sin. And come through it victorious. That's why it's a, it's a mind blowing thing for us to spend time considering who Jesus Christ is. You know if you ever struggle as a Christian. And you just, I'm finding it hard today to know what to read or whatever. Grab a gospel. And just read something about Jesus. And then just sit back. And try and think about the reality of who Jesus Christ is. Bringing in all these elements that he is God and man. Just let it go from there. Let's move on to point two. Jesus filling with the Holy Spirit so that he is empowered for ministry. So this is his equipping for the office that he's going to, to take on. Uh, 4 verse 1. We've thought about the Holy Spirit descending in bodily form as a dove. So there's that endorsement from God in spoken word and in uh, supernatural uh, vision. If I can put it that way. But 4 verse 1 tells us that as a consequence of that. Jesus full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan where he was baptized. And was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. Um, being tempted by the devil. Do you notice that he's filled with the Holy Spirit? He's led by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is operating in conjunction with the Godhead, the Trinity, in all that he's about. In the power of that, he steps forward. And where is he taken as part of his inauguration ceremony? He's taken to a place where there's nobody but him. And then the devil. And he's there for 40 days. It's supernatural. And he hasn't eaten. But he's gone there in the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit. And he's tempted by God. Sorry, big mystique. 
He is tempted by the devil while he is tested by God. I made the mistake for a reason. Because we must never say that we are tempted by God. We'll see why in a moment. He was led by the Spirit into an experience where he would be tested through the temptation that was brought by the devil. We need to understand this as we apply it to ourselves. And we're going to look at that now as we consider the Lord's filling with the Spirit so that he might be equipped for this life that he was stepping into and the office that he would bear. You know, God, for those of us that are believers, has called us and given us the responsibility to step into a life. But he doesn't leave us alone to to make up our own way through it. He comes in the person of his spirit to indwell us so that we might be guided in the fullness of the spirit into that which he wants for us. So that we can be enabled to live a life for his glory and for the good of others. Ephesians 5 and verse 18, Paul encourages those in the church of God in Ephesus, be filled with the spirit. So when God calls us, To fulfill a responsibility on his behalf. And that comes to all believers. He comes to be with us. All believers have the Holy Spirit indwelling. And to allow ourselves to be filled and then led. And that won't necessarily take us into the easy life that we love. It might take us into a life that's characterized and most likely will. That's characterized with suffering and struggle. But by the Spirit's indwelling and His empowering, we can be victorious for God's glory. So the Spirit of God fills him and leads him. Forty days. There's still a link with uh, God's Son here. You've had God declaring, you're my Son. Thinking about Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. You're my Son, my chosen one, my soul delights in. Here's the son of God, the son of Adam, who is glorious in his faithfulness to God and is going to demonstrate it. Here we have God's son going around in the wilderness for 40 days. Israel was regarded and called God's son. And you know how Israel was a redeemed people that was brought through the Red Sea, a symbol of baptism, and brought into the wilderness, having been given God's law, then were taken around the wilderness at God's direction for 40 years that God might test them. And then they were ready to go in. Now that's a very quick summary of something that's very intricate. But here I think we have a a representative of the failure of Israel as God's son. As a nation. Contrasted with the glory of Jesus, the Son of God, who goes around in the wilderness and he is tested and he comes through victorious, never slipping up at any moment along the way. God's Son will be tested just like Israel was and he will come through every test demonstrating his sinless perfection and his faithfulness to God. So that's why he is the Son of God. Now, this title, Son of God, comes to believers who put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus and allow the Spirit of God to work in them for their good, others' good, and the glory of God. 
In Romans chapter 8 and verses 13 through to 14, Paul says this, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now that's an important last phrase to that verse. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. Christian, we don't do this in our own strength. Whenever we're faced with temptation, and we're coming to look at the detail in a moment. When we're faced with temptation, we don't just say, it's out of sheer willpower that I'm going to withstand this. We don't do that. Like Jesus, we're filled with the Spirit and we rely on his leading through that temptation experience that is a testing from God. And we do it by the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the body. Those things that would take us off into sin and expose our faithlessness when God is looking to expose our faithfulness. Put to death by the Spirit. Let me read it again. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. Point is clear, is it? Not our own willpower, but by the power of God himself who indwells us. Verse then goes on. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. There it is. Ones who give the Father delight are those in whom the Spirit indwells and who has that freedom in the life of the believer to go wherever he would take and is helped through life to overcome the temptations that will come in this life as God would test us to demonstrate his power in our faithfulness. Praise God for that. Now, the third point is Jesus' faithfulness, his Faithfulness and victory as God's obedient son in the face of real temptation. The temptations from the devil addressed and had a go at Jesus as the son and Jesus as the Messiah. Casting doubt, though Satan knew full well, um, on Jesus' identity as the eternal God, but also on his identity as the promised Messiah figure. When the adversary comes, the devil comes and says, if you are the Son of God, he had no doubt. But he was saying, because you're the Son of God, you have all rights, it seems. So therefore, it's not going to harm you at all if you do what I say. Does that sound familiar? Go back to Genesis chapter 3. And you have the adversary, the devil, coming in to the first humans, Eve and Adam. And Eve is deceived because the devil comes and says, I know who you are, I know what God has said, but, you know, it's not going to be any harm to you if you do what I say. And she was deceived. And then Adam, it seems, comes into the sin fully knowing what it is he is doing is against the instruction of God and we fall into sin the adversary is clever the devil is clever his schemes are called clever schemes by Paul we're not unaware of them and he comes and he goes at things which are truths in our lives but he'll twist them in such a way so as to make us think that well if we do that and we respond in that way to the things that he says then we'll actually have some immediate joy right here and now. Not realising that in the process, 
we have failed God and there are consequences for it. Temptation is an attempt to lure and entice someone away from the perfect way of God. Satan comes up and questions God. That's what he does with Jesus. He's questioning God. What effrontery. It's a good word that. Um, what nerve to do that. But let's not any of us think that we're not anything like the devil. Because we do the same thing. We question God and his motives and his plans and his promises all the time, every day. So we know what we're like. And that's why we rely on God the Spirit. That he would fill and lead as we go through temptation. Did you notice that uh, the adversary also knows that for a period of time he has some authority? We, we should not overlook that. He says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And because they've been given to me, I'll give you the authority over them. Jesus was going to have, he had then, but he was going to have in a, in a very visible way and will have in the future all authority over everything. Every knee to him will bow. What is the adversary offering him in that moment? He says, you can have it now. Don't wait according to God's plan. Just step into it right now. I'll give it to you because it's been given to me. Now, we're into difficult uh, stuff to understand here, but God in his grand sovereign purposes has permitted for a period of time now that the adversary has an authority over this world system. 1 John 5, 19, John says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Jesus himself in John 12, verse 31, says the ruler of this world is coming. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, describes him as the God of this age who blinds the hearts of the unbelieving. In God's sovereign purposes, there is a permission granted to the adversary, the devil, to have authority over the world system. But God breaks through it. It's because our sinfulness goes that way and the adversary preys on it. That's why he has authority. But it is granted him by God who is sovereign over it all, who is working out his purposes for his glory ultimately. And he's doing it through Jesus who came through the temptation experience as the son of God, perfect and faithful. You know, the same temptations come to us all the time. Look, you can have it now. You don't need to wait. Just step into it, Jesus said, and others said, eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow we die. Just live for now. If we do that, we're missing out on what God has in store for those who love him. If we worship God, we will go after God's things. If we worship the things of this life, we're going to be given the things of this life and nothing besides. The devil is clever. We need to be aware of his schemes. Do you notice as well that the, the adversary is clever in that he takes scripture? So Jesus replies twice and says, it is written. And the adversary then thinks, all right, okay, I'll start quoting some scripture. So he takes Psalm 91 and he takes the scripture, rips it out of its context. Christians, we're good at doing that too. He rips it out of its context to apply it in a way that shouldn't have been applied. We're dealing with an enemy who knows his stuff. He knows the truth of things, but he will take it and he will twist it 
to make it look attractive to us and to that nature within us that still tends away from God, that he might take us away so that the faithfulness of God in our lives would not come for God's glory. How do we overcome this? By the filling and the leading of the Spirit and by the example of Jesus. Now, some people say, well, because Jesus was without sin, these temptations weren't real. They're not the same as what we have. That's rubbish. These were real, and they tested Jesus. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So there's a qualifier there that says that he was without sin. So that did have an effect when the temptations came as part of God's testing of his man. But that doesn't mean the temptations were not real. The Greek word behind it, perazzo, um, relies on the context of the sentence and paragraph to be translated either as testing and testing is a thing in scripture that is to build somebody up or to be translated as temptation which is to bring somebody down so we have to be careful when we're looking at language here and bible translators are take great pains to get this right for us and we praise god for that we're being told by luke that the lord jesus led by the spirit and empowered by him filled with him went into an experience where he would be tested by God that he would be built up that involved the temptation of the devil that could bring him down now it's the same for us as Christians he will bring us into circumstances where God will test us and it might be that involved in that is the temptation of the agency of the adversary who comes at us now Here is a distinction. Jesus being without sin meant that there was no internal response to the temptation. We as sinners who have that tendency and we have that internal sinfulness that still resides in the Christian has something that does react to the temptation. Now temptations can come from within and temptations can come from without. Here we're we're told of a temptation that came at the Lord from outside. And there was nothing in him that would respond to it. But as a man who was hungry, again one of Luke's great understatements, after 40 days and having nothing to eat, he was hungry. um, There was the reality of the temptation in the moment as a man to satisfy a desire which was a natural desire which was hunger. But there was nothing in him that would respond to what would be implied by the adversary, the devil's <coughs> attempts. If you turn this, if you do what I tell you, then you'll have your bread. It didn't respond to that, but the desire was real. Do you get it? The, the sin was not there in the Lord Jesus to respond to that as it would with us. As a man, he could feel the reality of the temptations, real desires. But as God, he could not respond wrongly 
There was no sin in him to allow him to respond wrongly. And that's where people struggle and say, well, the temptations were not real then. But somebody has said this, and it's often repeated. Listen carefully. The one, the only one who fully resists temptation knows the full extent of its force. That's an important statement. The only one who fully resists temptation knows the full extent of its force. If you're faced with a temptation, how do you know how difficult it is going to be to come through that temptation if you give in to it before the end point? With Jesus, we're told that the devil had ended every temptation he departed. There came a point where the devil gave up. The devil will give up with us if by the power of the Spirit we withstand the temptations. Not in our own willpower, but by the power of the Spirit he will bring us through. And well, we'll know what it is to come through the temptation. Very quickly, James chapter 1 verses 13 to 15 say this. This is important for us. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person, listen, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's one of the most hideous um, descriptions in all of scripture. Of children being born. That's the imagery. And they're just hideous. (coughs) But we cannot say that when we're being tempted, it's of God. We need to be clear that temptation might be in God's purposes permitted as the devil and our own sinfulness might respond to circumstances but by the spirit we can overcome it it might be part of a testing experience that we can come through to show the faithfulness that is in us that is not of us but is of God Jesus was tested by God tempted by Satan 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Jesus can do that by the Spirit's help. The way of escape... The Greek language for that has the imagery of a, of a small group of soldiers who are the last remaining ones of a defeated army who've fled into the hills and they're trapped, it seems. And their enemy is coming after them and this is it, it's all over. But then suddenly there's this little gap and they all slip down through it and the enemy arrives and goes, where did they go? That's the imagery. The way of escape just opens up. And sometimes we need to be patient as we work our way up this mountain of temptation to look for that little gap that suddenly will present itself. And by the power of the Spirit, we rush through it and the adversary's left wondering where we've gone. I think that's wonderful imagery. And it's all of God. He will also provide the way of escape. How did Jesus answer the temptations? It's often been said, it is written, it is written, it's written. You'll not put the Lord your God to the test. And so on. It's these statements of scripture. The psalmist, Psalm 119 verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's why we pray. And why the Lord Jesus gave us the prayer. Lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil. 
So we've considered Jesus' identification with sinners and his sinless perfection. One of the people, and from the people, he's going to take office that is glorious. His filling with the Holy Spirit to be empowered for service and equipping for office. His faithfulness and victory as God's obedient son in the face of real temptation. His fitness for office. His empowering for office. His qualifications for office. And we see it all. And it's glorious. But you know, Jesus will identify with sinners in a fuller way when he himself bears our sin on the body and his body on the tree. Jesus, through the eternal spirit, it says in Hebrews 9, offers himself without blemish to God. And Jesus will be faithful to death. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Why do we look at this? It's because in this we have hope that we can be helped in this life too. For those who believe, by identification we enter into the same victory and same assurance of victory as we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're empowered and equipped for service and helped through life as we face the temptations that would derail us and destroy us. By God's help, we step forward into the victory. Let's pray.